This is Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. The stories behind inventions. Episode 1. When we were very young. You will have to have been living in a Wi-Fi-free, mobile network dead zone in the middle of the Gobi Desert, wearing a blindfold, ears stopped with wax, hogtied in a deep, dark hole, not to have been made aware, over the last year or so, of the coming tidal wave of technology and innovation, under headings like the rise of the robots, the dawn of superintelligence, the coming singularity, and humanity 4.0. Articles, blogs, and books on the subject have seeded, fruited, and proliferated everywhere, while titans of tech and science like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Ray Kurzweil have been beating the war drums and urging the world to prepare. For far out in the ocean of discovery, huge swells have been gathering and combining to create the great tsunami that will soon engulf us. Stranded, frozen and hypnotised on the shore, we watch these waves conjoin and build on the not-so-far horizon. Quantum computing, artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, robotics, gene editing, bionics and biological augmentation, brain-machine interfacing, autonomous vehicles and weaponry, revolutionary new materials like nanotubes and graphene, each of these is poised to bring transformative change on their own, but even more profoundly in their ineluctable convergence with the others. We will come to why this should be happening now at a later time, but rather than attempt to sketch a prophetic landscape, whether in order to sound a joyous fanfare of welcome or a terrified klaxon of alarm, I want first to look back at how innovation in technology has, from the first, changed our ways of living, our sense of who we are, and what we are to expect from life. So, welcome. And first, I'd better come clean with you. You may know that I've had a lifelong interest in technology, but you should understand, too, that I am not a scientist, technologist or engineer of hardware or software, neither by training nor talent. It takes me a long time to understand scientific ideas, mostly because they're nearly always founded in the abstractions of mathematics, and I have, since childhood, had an attitude to numbers that approximates my attitude to tigers. They are, to be sure, beautiful beyond words, magnificent, strange, fascinating and powerful, but they fill me with awe, dread, fear, a deep sense of inadequacy, and a presentiment that unless I run away, I will wet myself. It may be that my slow, clumsy, and gradual grasp of scientific ideas makes me a better explainer of them to those of you to whom, like me, scientific expressions, theories, and language come slowly. I would like to think that the effort I've made to understand the fundamental properties of, for example, electricity, might make me a reasonably good explainer. 
But to those of you gifted by nature with superior scientific understanding, training and insight, it may also be that what I say comes across as wildly simplistic, overgeneralized, or indeed factually in error. I can only plead that these talks aren't aimed at you. They're aimed at people like me, those curious, confused and fascinated by technological progress and what it means to us. So long as we're all clear about that, I think we can proceed on our voyage of discovery. Where do we begin the story of technology? Our ancestors had, or so the archaeological evidence indicates, become used to making varied and progressively more useful tools as far back as two million years ago. 300,000 years ago, it seems that we became confident in our use of fire, and an alien, looking down, might have marked us out as destined for a future that would be likely to separate us from the other animals on the planet, for we were already exhibiting the hallmarks of a nascent technological species. By that, I mean we had found ways of improving our life chances by utilising natural forces like flames and by shaping and transforming natural materials like wood and stone into tools, instruments that could in some ways enhance, complement or augment the tools that evolution had given us, our teeth, eyes, hands and so on. If you've ever seen Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, you'll recall that thrilling moment in the film when an early human picks up a thigh bone to use as a tool for the first time. Having seen its power as a weapon, he or she gives a cry of triumphant exultation and throws the bone up in the air. We watch it slowly rise and revolve against the blue of the sky until it morphs into a space station orbiting the Earth to the strains of Johann Strauss's Blue Danube. This inspired sequence compresses the continuum of the journey we took from bone hammers to rocketry, from flint arrowheads to telecommunications into one sweeping image. For us, that journey delineates the arc of our whole history. In geological or cosmic time, it was indeed as rapid as a toss into the air. Then till now. Round about 200,000 years ago, our tool-making, fire-burning ancestors could be regarded as biologically, physiologically, genetically us. They had settled into the species identity that we now call ourselves Homo sapiens. If we went back in time, we would recognise them and they us. We would be able to mate with them and produce viable offspring that were indistinguishable from human babies today, indistinguishable but for one faculty. For they were missing one vital, apparently physiological attribute that differentiates us from them. We'll come to that in a moment. The skills we were developing with fire and stone tools were part of our progress towards what those who study this field call behavioural modernity, that drive to adapt and transform materials for our benefit suggests, as I have said, that there was already something rather different about us. That is to say, our behaviours and life strategies differed from those exhibited by other creatures. 
The nests of birds, the dams of beavers, the webs of spiders, for example, marvellous, intricate and powerful as those all are, seem clearly to be the result of evolution developing individual instinctive specialisations and adaptations that are passed on through the generations of the species, refined by natural selection rather than, as in our case, the result of a brain evolving the ability to come up with new and ever-progressing general skills, which are then consciously taught and handed down, not through the genes, but by communication. A mother spider, in other words, doesn't teach her hundreds and hundreds of infant spiderlings how to construct a web, but a human child wouldn't know how to weave unless a parent showed them. Fire and tool-making were remarkable, but for the full transmission of ideas and skills down the generations and across the collective species, something entirely new was needed to push behavioural modernity to an original and radical extreme. And sure enough, this change to our brains did come perhaps 60 or 70,000 years ago. Yuval Noah Harari, whose hugely successful book Sapiens I have scavenged for some of the timelines and chronologies laid out in this first podcast, calls this big bang of the brain the cognitive revolution, the first of three existential transformations to our way of living that he identifies. The next two were to be the agricultural and then the industrial revolutions, both of which entirely depended on this first, the cognitive the tsunami about which I spoke earlier will be the fourth such revolution, although no one's agreed yet as to what we should call it. By the word cognitive, we mean to do with our understanding, perception, intelligence, reason and thinking, our cognition. That covers a heck of a lot and shouldn't be taken to refer only to an ability consciously to calculate, reason, plan and predict. Cognition is quite as much unconscious as it is self-aware, but that's a whole other ball of wax. What then caused the cognitive revolution? How can it be that 60 or 70,000 years ago our brains seemed suddenly to become supercharged? We can't chart a parallel increase in skull size or brain capacity, but it is undeniable that we, as it were out of the blue, developed a skill remarkable, magical, profound and unique enough to catapult our species forwards in a way that simple tool-making and fire management could never have achieved on their own. We're using it now. You, by listening, are using it quite as much as I am by talking. I mean, of course, language. What language did for us all that time ago is almost impossible to overestimate. It allowed for far more than the labelling of objects and actions by assigning special sounds to them. The nature of tenses, past, future, present, not to mention cunning wrinkles like conditionals and imperfects, meant that we were able to transmit knowledge with infinitely more subtlety and precision than by the act of physical demonstration and signalling. We could communicate experience, wisdom and law, ensuring that ideas, techniques and abilities did not have to be relearned generation on generation. The verbal structure of language allows tenses to be mixed, letting us plan according to experience. Let's meet in two sunrises at the hilly place where we saw that mammoth last full moon. There could now be such things as knowledge and information, data 
stored in one brain, if you want to put it this way, could be uploaded to another. Close-knit families could organise themselves into wider clans and tribes whose identity, history, beliefs and aims could be expressed and passed around the group and into new generations. Metaphors allowed the pattern recognition intelligence of our forefathers to shortcut and compress itself into a deeper understanding of the rhythms and connections between all the natural phenomena we encountered and observed. It's hard not to conclude that language was the parent of thought. But language was, it seems, a, a biological occurrence, a genetic, neurological achievement for all the implications of its cultural impact. Later, much later, only about 5,000 years ago, came writing as we would know it. Writing is purely cultural. It has to be taught. A child of the highest IQ will not read and write unless instructed and shown how, while even a child of low IQ can absorb language without instruction. Spoken language is not taught, it is acquired, soaked up willy-nilly. The capacity for it, linguistic competence, is inborn like, like flight in a bird. Parents can encourage and, and correct, but the ability seems to be encoded in our brains. Just as we are programmed to sprout hairs from our armpits at a certain age, so we are programmed to develop language skills at a certain age. When that age passes and the language acquisition window closes, it all becomes, as we know, to our brain-numbing cost from French lessons at school, much harder. Language, then, was the foundation of the cognitive revolution. All the other skills and accomplishments that came along sprang from it. It allowed a, a speeding up of our evolution in the sense that cultural evolution could transform us more deeply than biological evolution and with accelerating rapidity. Some thinkers would argue language created a new sphere. The world began, they suggest, with the geosphere and was transformed by the biosphere, which was in turn transformed through our language and cognition into the noosphere, the sphere of thought, of knowledge, of information, which itself affected the wholesale reshaping of the first two spheres. However one likes to express this overwhelming change, by spheres or by revolutions, we can be sure, I think, that language and the cognitive advance was the necessary trigger for the next transformative leap agriculture. We developed the capacity for language 60 or 70,000 years ago. The agricultural revolution took hold round about 10,000 years ago, very recently. 5% of our lifetime is a separate species. If our span as Homo sapiens is thought of as one 24-hour day, with us now at midnight, then we started to speak in the early evening and began planting, tilling and reaping at 10 to 11. We didn't read and write until a few minutes ago. As we'll see, progress isn't a steady curve. It lifts into a swiftly rising upward peak and becomes a sheer wall, like the wall of that coming tsunami. Our metamorphosis has been incredibly quick, and it's getting faster and faster all the time. 
For twenty-three hours of our day we had been without notion of home, without settlements, towns, cities, what we might call civilization, Not inhabiting permanent dwellings, villages or fixed communities, but wandering in families or larger bands, finding food as we travelled, using at the most temporary huts and tents for habitation, foraging for edible plants, mushrooms, fruits, nuts and so on, or trapping, spearing and hunting down edible animals. We could cook, we constructed artefacts for containing water and cooking food, and we continued to develop weapons useful for the trapping and felling of animals, and for defence and aggression in wars with other social groupings, enemy tribes. All the time we were talking to each other. Each social grouping, clan and tribe developed its own dialect, its own fully-fledged language, incomprehensible to outsiders. And then someone said... One day, rather than browse nature and gather what naturally grows, let's sow the seeds of this grass and wait for it to grow. Let's prepare the earth, hang around to tend it, and defend it from birds, locusts and mice. Then we'll all benefit from the bumper crop of grains when they ripen. The notional figure who proposed this is sometimes called our barley mother. Her idea was enacted, archaeologists seem agreed, in an area that covers today's Iraq, Syria and Turkey, the lush lands that lie between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. The Greek for between rivers is Mesopotamia. Much hostile desert surrounds the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia, so perhaps it's not difficult to imagine how, perhaps after a drought that desertified the land even more unforgivingly than usual, the cry might indeed have gone round, let's not keep wandering to where we hope the food might be, let's stay here and grow the food. We should stop for a moment now and consider the calorie. We're used to thinking of this unit as being representative of the properties in food that make us put on weight. Calorific food to us today means fat-making food, something to be avoided or indulged in once in a while as a treat. Perhaps we don't give the word any further thought than that. Calor is the Latin for heat. The word calorific means heat-making. Heat, in this universe of ours, means work or to give it its Greek name, energy. In order to warm us up enough for our systems and organs to work, our limbs to operate and our brains to process, for example, we need fuel, just as any engine does. We get that fuel from the organic matter that we put into the holes in our faces. Nowhere else. The chemical and heat exchange factories inside our bodies take the heat energies stored in fats, proteins and starches and use it to heat us and our constituent parts, blood, organs, muscles and so on. This burning of the calories keeps our bodies running and entropy, heat loss, at bay. The indigestible and non-nutritive elements the system throws away, the ashes from our fire, but in that undignified and smelly style with which we are all too familiar. I know this is all absurdly obvious, but it does need to be thought about, I think. Unless we fill our furnace with fuel, the boiler goes out. We can use quick-burning fuels for bursts of power or slow-burning fuels for stamina and endurance. I have to remind myself, time.
time and time again that every single element of me, my eyelashes, fingernails, hair, iris, kneecaps and kidneys, they are all constructed entirely out of the things I put into that hole in my face. The phrase, you are what you eat, is not a vague metaphor. It is a hard, literal truth. And that goes for plants, of course. Where does the aroma, colour and composition of an apple come from, for example? From the nutrition the apple tree pulls up from its roots, through its trunk and branches and into its leaves. The water it pumps around itself contains tiny particles of minerals, metals, rare earths and trace elements, chemicals which the tree can synthesise into fragrance, colour, growth and substance. It is what it eats, but it has an extra trick we don't. It harnesses the freely abundant energy of the sun, using that technique called photosynthesis. The light reacts with its cells and is converted into the energy required to do much of the work of its growth, blossoming and fruiting. Parts of the apple tree become attractive food for insects, birds and rabbits. The insects harvest some of the apple tree's calorific, nutritive value so that they themselves become a plump, calorific treat for lizards, say, and birds, who, even plumper and more calorific, become an energy-rich treat for cats and birds of prey. The rabbit, busy, 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 chomping the apples and leaves, and the deer, nibbling the bark, become plump and calorific treats for the fox and wolf. They, at the top of the food chain, get the benefit of all those calories packed into one rich package. And better than that, no one is going to eat them. As Stephen Pinker puts it, with the exception of fruit, everything we call food is the body part or energy store of some other organism, which would just as soon keep that treasure for itself. Fruit is an exception, of course, because plants deliberately tempt birds, insects and animals with it in order to spread their seeds as far and wide as possible. You're listening to Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. I'll be back after a short interval. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now, we think today that everything in our world goes into hoarding money, but really, you could argue that the story of our species has been just as predicated on hoarding calories, as has the story of all species of animal. Firstly, we hoarded food calories to fuel our bodies. Then we learned to use the stored calories in other organic matter, or what was once organic matter, like the vegetation that compressed over time into coal, or the sea creatures that turned over time into oil and gas, trapping their calories for our later mechanical purposes. 
Pinker puts it this way, advances in energy capture are advances in human destiny. Tearing the flesh of plants and animals, or excavating fossilised animals in the form of coal or gas, it's essentially the same. Stored calories to be burned run machines, our soft machine bodies and our hard machine technological contraptions. The more efficiently fuel can be hoisted into the mechanisms, the better. By efficiently, we mean doing the most work for the least calorific consumption, and it's always a challenge to achieve that efficiency. You've probably seen how tight the margins are in nature. The lions, leopards and cheetahs of the savannah, for example, love to gorge themselves on the highly calorific flesh, fat and tissue of an antelope. It's theft, really. The antelope does all the work to ingest calories and the predator rips it open and takes them in rapacious mouthfuls. Just one kill will allow a family of big cats to laze around under trees for days, the gorger living off the hard work of the grazer. But it requires a lot of calories to chase an antelope down. Antelopes are strong and quick and really don't want to be caught. They themselves have a less efficient way of earning the calories that the lion wants to steal. They have to munch barely nutritious grasses for up to 20 hours a day every day just to build their body mass, the body mass that makes them so attractive to lions, leopards and cheetahs in the first place, those huge stores of calories in their flanks. They can run and weave and dodge a big cat until the cat is too knackered to chase. Meat-eaters have speed and are capable of phenomenal bursts of power. Vegetarians, like antelopes, have enormous stamina and strength and can endure. Lions have learnt to hunt in packs to make the best use of their combined energy stores. Antelopes have learnt to graze in large herds, the better to hedge their bets and present a tough target to predators. Nature keeps itself in a tense balance. David Attenborough has been telling us about this for the best part of 60 years. We say predators are at the top of the food chain because, like the rich in human society, they get the most calories for the least effort from the labour of others, and no one is brave enough to take it away from them. The currency of nature's economy, then, is the calorie. If you were a physicist, you would call it a jewel, though you might prefer to say that the currency of the universe is the erg, the unit of work, which is also to say of heat and of energy. It amounts to the same thing. In the heyday of our reliance on fossil fuels, we talked of the petrodollar, for our modern world, as much as our bodies, is an economy whose currency is heat, which is to say energy, which is to say work. The cognitive revolution saved us calories. Language, which takes processing power in the brain that does use up heat from ingested calories, is nonetheless much more efficient than full bodily exertion. To grunt and mime and guess a charade takes more calories than to speak and understand. To point to a stone or go and fetch one to convey the idea of stone takes more calories than to say the word stone. But more than that, the savings on energy that can be made by forward planning, agreed-upon teamwork and cooperation are enormous. If you can tell someone where the best fruit is hanging or where the most vulnerable deer is grazing, you save hours of tracking, spotting, staking out, dead-end disappointments and dangerous expenses of energy. The cognitive revolution, then, like all our advances, was first and foremost a calorie-saving achievement. 
The agricultural revolution took this much, much further. To cultivate food, and the next step to domesticate animals, produced staggeringly efficient savings. Pack animals could carry weights for us, or indeed have us on their backs. Draft animals could pull carts and ploughs, all of which saved us calories. We drilled and hoed and planted seeds and waited around until fields of crops bursting with calories came up for us to share. We could store our calories for the first time, not just in our fat, as bears and squirrels do against the coming winter, but outside our bodies, in grain silos and barns. The working animals could graze the land around, getting their calories for free. New partner animals, like dogs and cats, could be warmed and protected by our fires and bribed with our scraps to depend upon us and work for us. The cats ate the rodents that threatened the stored grain. The dogs helped warn us about invaders, animal or human. We discovered that this revolution came at a price, that there was a trade-off so mean and exacting that it almost wiped out the benefits. We will see that this melancholy truth seems to hold true for all our revolutions. The saving of calories always comes at a high cost. Before the agricultural revolution, the life of the human browsing, foraging, killing prey, moving on in groups, the life, in other words, of the hunter-gatherer, was not so very different from that of other animals. We lived on the edge, never sure where the next meal might be coming from, but we were inasmuch as the word meant anything to a hunter-gatherer, free. Tribes might have had leaders, but there were no peasant classes, no serfs and slaves, no bosses and barons, no property in the form of land or animals. Work, the actual hunting, gathering, food preparation, tool-making and so on, is reckoned to have taken hunter-gatherers perhaps five hours of every day, maximum. The rest was... Who knows? Play, music, dancing, bonding, storytelling. It would be easy to idealise the life of the hunter-gatherer, but enough tribes who still pursue that way of earning a calorie have survived into our era for us to be able to say that it certainly promotes fitness, trimness, group bonding, and a pretty healthy, and by all accounts and appearances, happy, stress-free and fulfilled life. Well, come now, Stephen, this is... Old-school exaggeration. Admiring the life of the hunter-gatherer to the point of idealising and romanticising it was a great fad amongst anthropologists in the 1960s, but we can be sure that crime, infanticide, notably the murdering of girl babies, illness and misery were not absent from the hunter-gatherer then, as they are not now in the few pockets where they survive. Nonetheless, it is worth observing that tying ourselves to the labour of agriculture did involve heavy losses. The agricultural revolution brought abundances of stored calories to call upon, which created the possibility of wealth for some groupings. The places where we sowed our fields of crops had to be protected and constantly maintained, so we stopped travelling and settled. But living cheek by jowl with animals brought a momentous increase in sickness. 
All kinds of diseases and parasites jumped across to us from the cows, goats, sheep, horses and pigs that we domesticated. And because we were now living in close proximity to each other, as well as to the animals in small huts and sharing what we would now regard as insanitary dwellings, the illnesses were easily passed on amongst us in contagions and disastrous epidemics that reached the level of population-scourging plague and pestilence. Stronger, smarter, more violent and ambitious humans took the opportunity to rise up and take command over us. They had their uses. They defended their group against threats from other groups who might try to raid their settlements, steal the group's precious calories, or invade and take over the fertile land that grew those calories. These leaders were rewarded by having the pick of the calories so they could be strong defenders, and they were naturally excused the back-breaking work in the fields. Their strength was saved for defence. They lived in the best weatherproof dwellings, rode on horseback, and they, then their children after them, became a class of overlord. Peasants soon found that somehow the overlord owned the land that they, the peasants, worked. All the calories that came from it, in the form of fat pigs, fruit and grains, belonged to the overlord, and only a tiny percentage could be retained by the peasant, the minimum amount of calories, to enable them to do the labour that enriched the lord. Subsistence living right on the margin, just like animals in the wild, but this time without freedom. The energy that ground the wheat and barley to make flour derived at first from only the calorie power of the peasants who pounded the grains into meal. Later it could come from natural sustainable forces from the sun or gravity, from wind, which is ultimately powered by the sun, that turned the sails of windmills, or from the gravitational flow of streams that turned watermills. Ploughs drawn by horses and mills powered by nature certainly saved human calories, but for a long sweep of time humanity was fed by the raw physical labour of peasants whose life margins were cruel and unforgiving. So, for centuries, the new abundance of calories that agriculture brought about were the result of human calories, peasants toiling in the sun, shivering and thin in the winter, with just, just enough calories to do the work that swelled the silos and barns of their masters. A pretty bad deal. The more calories that were produced, the richer the overlords and their children grew. The more they could trade and acquire material goods, better horses, they could build castles, support armies, and institute laws of property, constitutions, and mythic ideas about the supremacy of nobles and the natural hierarchy of classes that made sure the calories kept flowing their way. You don't have to be a swivel-eyed lefty or deep-dyed Marxist to recognise the injustice that came into the world along with agriculture and the laws of property and order that inevitably followed in its train. As the medieval radical preacher John Ball put it, when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? Or perhaps you prefer, as I do, the great British musical artist Billy Bennett, it's the same the whole world over. It's the poor what gets the blame. It's the rich what gets the pleasure. Ain't it all a blooming shame? 
I'm not going to attempt, even if I were capable, a great survey of history that encompasses wars and empires, trade routes, commerce, politics and religion, but... As we know, villages became towns, became cities, coastal trading posts became bustling ports, families, clans and tribes began to identify as nations, and nations defined themselves according to their laws, customs, rituals and beliefs. When script, alphabetical writing, came just 3,000 or so years ago, all these new mythical identities and narratives of ourselves could be written down. Some people would call this the true beginning of the information age. Certain scripts became scriptures. And just as a warrior class arose, there arose also a priestly class. The peasants feared and obeyed both classes. Merchants and educated clerks arose in between and were called, for that reason, the middle classes. And this way of living went on more or less unchanged for two and a half millennia, long enough, in human terms, for it to seem the inevitable order of things. Work was natural, even in the form of sweat labour and grinding toil. The rewards for being born in the right family, having a quick brain or a greedy, decisive kind of acquisitive strength, such rewards were looked on as natural too. The hierarchies of prince and priest, merchant and magistrate, were endorsed by the written myths of nationhood and the scriptures, all readable and interpretable only by those at the top of those hierarchies. The ability to feed pigs, tend flocks and thresh grain seemed brutish and without much value in comparison. In Britain, 750 years ago, there was a peasant's revolt, exactly around the time John Ball was declaiming his Adam Delved and Eve Spann couplet. But if the established order was ever seriously rocked, it was rocked not by uppity peasants who were soon dealt with and dispersed, but by barons and kings warring with each other. The peasantry kept to its place. Just as the so-called lower animals eat the plants and themselves become food for other animals that are in turn good for the predators at the top of the chain, so the peasants gathered and concentrated the calories of nature for the benefit of others. This was considered natural, inevitable, and even divinely sanctioned. Lest I sound too doomy about the social state of humanity as a result of the agricultural revolution, it is worth pointing to another strain in us, aside from the tendency where it is possible to subjugate and suppress to be king of the castle, within us there were always those who thought differently, who challenged, provoked, inspired and moved us forward. For all that the priests, warriors and merchants fed their own ambitions, we should recall that from those classes there arose outliers and those who planted seeds for change, seeds whose germination and flowering benefits us to this day. Between roughly 800 and 300 BC, simultaneously around the world, as a result probably of the stability and calorific prosperity that agriculture provided, and hence the luxury of time for thinking it afforded, another kind of revolution took place. It was what the German philosopher Karl Jaspers called the axial age. Axial in the sense of pivotal. A revolution in thinking. Confucianism, Taoism, Jainism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Judaism, Greek drama, mathematics and philosophy all flourished at once. 
As Stephen Pinker puts it, Confucius, Buddha, Pythagoras, Aeschylus, and the last of the Hebrew prophets walked the earth at the same time. In the Axial Age, the voice of Archimedes had uttered the words that prophesied something extraordinary to come if humans used their minds to understand and harness natural forces. Give me a lever long enough and a place to stand, he said, and I shall move the world. Thirteen hundred years later, someone finally did move a lever that changed the world, and we'll tell that story next time. I wanted in this introductory podcast to establish an obvious but easily overlooked constant in our lives, how heat is work is energy, is heat, is work, and how the story of our species can be seen as the story of our attempts to get the best exchange rate in those currencies. Technology seems to allow us to do more work for fewer calories, although it actually doesn't, of course, but that's such an attractive deal that we have never in our history turned down what that deal can bring, never mind the side effects, trade-offs, drawbacks and downsides. But why there always is a downside, a drawback, a trade-off? Well, we can think about why that may be in our own time. Perhaps it's because in our universe heat is always ultimately lost. There's always dissipation, entropy, call it by what name you will. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that heat will always flow from a hotter body to a cooler one. The consequences are annoying but can't be got round. It means a system must use more heat than it can generate. This denies the possibility ever of a perpetual motion device. It means things decay. Order goes to disorder, to chaos. As the mathematician in Tom Stoppard's play Arcadia puts it, if you put a spoonful of strawberry jam on your rice pudding and then stir five times clockwise, the pudding goes pink. If you've kept your spoon in and now stir five times anti-clockwise, you won't get the jam back. You never get the jam back. You can look on this, the second law of thermodynamics, as the tax the universe levies on heat exchange. Whenever we exchange currencies, our calories for calories from coal or fission, for example, we have to pay the cosmic bureau de change a little commission. Maddening, but so far as we know, it's the only universe we've got. Ain't it all a blooming shame? Next time, we will find ourselves bouncing into more modern times and I will be able to stop talking in sweeping generalities and look at individual lives, innovations, inventions, triumphs and disasters. I do hope you'll join me. Until then, farewell and keep counting the calories. You've been listening to Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. Grateful thanks to our composer, Guy Farley. Also thanks to the Audio Network. For further information on the podcast series, visit stephenfry.com forward slash Great Leap Years. Great Leap Years is produced by Andrew Sampson and Norman Goodman. This is a Sam Fry Limited production.